Welcome everybody. If you've got your Bibles, uh, open to Exodus chapter 32. I just pray. Father, thank you for another opportunity to be in your word, Lord, to be worshipping you uh, through your word. And we just pray you reveal truth to us and help us to understand. And I pray that you'll help me to, to speak the words you want me to speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we talked about the anointing that God gave the artists who were going to build the tabernacle. And we talked about that God calls each of us by name and empowers us by his Holy Spirit to do the work that he has already planned for us to do. And I just wanted to start this week by just reminding us of one important point from last week, which is Ephesians 2.10. Now I've got it in three different versions because it just brings out different nuances of this verse. My main thing is that you get it. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the New Living says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And the Amplified, For we are God's own handiwork, his workmanship recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew, that we may do those good works which God predestined, planned beforehand for us, taking paths which he prepared ahead of time, that we should walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us to live. So our life is not an accident. Our life has purpose. We are a work of art. That's what that word means. Uh, workmanship, masterpiece, handiwork, work of art. And our life is a work of art. It's beautiful. And as we walk in the paths that God has for us, that's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our fulfillment. And we also learn that although God has prepared for us many good works to do, still the most important part of our relationship is simply to abide in Christ, to sit at his feet and revel in his love, to rest in him, and as the psalm says, be still and know that I am God. We also talked about God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, and its function, especially with evangelism. It describes God's character, who he is. He is beautiful, he is lovely, glorious, magnificent, majestic, marvelous, awesome, and gracious. So the law is a definition of real, true, inner beauty. You might say, hang on a sec, but if you think about that, well, it says do not lie. So if God doesn't lie, then it must, he must be truthful. If he says do not lust, then he must be faithful. So that's, that's what I'm getting at there. Now, sin in comparison is ugly, foul, wicked, and vile. Once we see ourselves in the light of God's law, then we see ourselves as sinners. Ugly, foul, wicked, hideous, and vile in God's eyes. And only then does the cross make sense. Only then do we understand our need to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus and have our sin debt paid. Then once a person has freely had their sin debt paid and is washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, they understand grace and willingly submit and serve their great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So this week, we come to the section of Scripture where the Israelites disobey God by making a golden calf. So this is quite an interesting section. And because it's one big story, uh, this whole chapter is the story. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Um, starting in verse 18 of chapter 31. 
just to get the context. So it's the last verse in chapter 31, and then I'm going to read all of chapter 32. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, so when God had made an end of speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a moulded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people... I like that, your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make out of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power, And with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants? to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other side they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, 
and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side, and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about three thousand men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if ye will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Notice that God corrects Aaron's lie there. It says it popped out of the fire in the very last words in this chapter, which Aaron, it says, God says, which Aaron made. So God sees. In chapter 32, we're seeing Moses as a mediator. 
in chapter 33, maybe next week, we'll see him as an intercessor. In chapter 34, we'll see him as a worshipper. So these are are really special qualities that Moses has. And why does he have them? Because he spends time with God. So these events happened during the 40 days Moses was up in the mountain. And um, just go back to Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, so Moses was there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he didn't come down until he had heard from God, until he had the word of the Lord. Now, for me personally, that's often not what happens. I'll be on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, but if I sense something going wrong down below... I'll kind of stop praying, try and fix this problem in my own strength. In my own energy, thinking, I know, oh, there's a, there's a problem out there, I need to go and fix it. But Moses didn't. He stayed on the mountain until the Lord made an end of speaking with him, until he had the word of the Lord in his hand. Another way of putting that, it was he stayed there until he knew God's will. He persevered in prayer. He persevered in prayer, spent time with the Lord. And he didn't leave, he didn't stop until he knew God's will. And there's lots of um, parables that Jesus told about persevering in prayer. And I want to come back to that later on. So the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. It's interesting, Moses is called a man of God. And there's only a handful of people called a man of God in the scriptures. And uh, Moses is a great man. He's the author of both, both the first and the last hymn in the Bible. That's Exodus 15 and Revelation 15. And he's, aside from Jesus, I would say the greatest leader, the most humble and meek man who ever walked the earth. So where is he? The people are fretting. What are we paying him for anyway? <laughs> You know, that's what we might say to to someone nowadays. We don't know what's happened to him. So now, Aaron, you're a man. So it's it's so easy to give up. It's so easy to to lose patience with God. 40 days is a long time to wait. And like me, have you guys ever, you know, prayed for something but then given up on that prayer and just done what you thought best? So, as I said, we'll come back to that later. Uh, Verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So this calf was one of the gods of Egypt golden calf that they used to worship or the Egyptians used to worship. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So question here, is it really a feast to the Lord? Or is it a feast to this idol? which basically represents a demon. Look at what they're doing. 
rising up to play. The Bible describes that as in, in other places as things you wouldn't want to talk about around your kids. Moses' older brother, Aaron, he was a great man too, but he had a character flaw. Can you think of what his character flaw might be? Aaron was a man pleaser. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. Now, at any given moment, I will either be living in the fear of man, being more concerned about what people think about me, or living in the fear of God, more concerned about what my father thinks about me. And Paul says in Galatians, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. You can't say it much more clearer than that. If we're a man-pleaser, we are not a God-pleaser. In fact, we're not even God's servant. We can, Romans says we can present our bodies as members, uh, our members to Christ or to Satan as uh, instruments of worship. We can worship Satan and his, um, his evil things or, and, and desires, or we can worship God. We can use our bodies either way. Uh, verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. <laughs> so I think it's humorous here because um, God says they're your people now. And uh, my wife and I, we often muck around with this concept when the kids are being naughty, or they're your kids. <laughs> you, you, deal, you deal with them. <laughs> Marissa replies, No, nah, they're your kids, you deal with them. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So what God is saying here is that, Moses, I'm going to wipe these guys out, and I'm going to make a new nation from you. Now, if you're in Moses' shoes right now, you'd be going, wow, you really, you, you think I'm the right person to make a nation from? You know, and you might be starting a bit prideful. I think, wow, God's going to make a nation out of me. The nation of Moses. <laughs> Not the Israelites anymore, the, the, the Mosites. But Moses, he's a humble man. And he doesn't, he doesn't go along with that thinking. His thinking is for the people. He's a leader, and what does a leader do? Well, he's serving the people. And so he continues to serve the people by interceding for them, mediating for them. He says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the, the humility of Moses, that they've just done something seriously wrong, and not only offended God, but offended Moses. He's their leader, and they've turned their back on him. Okay, they've said, who is it? Where is he? You know, who is he anyway? 
and have turned their back on him. But Moses does not stop praying for them. His prayer has three parts to it. He's praying on behalf of his people in verse 11, his prestige or honor in verse 12, and his promise in verse 13, his promise to Abraham. So if you wipe out these people, what will the Egyptians think? Moses said to God, they will say you are unable to do what you promised, to finish what you began. So Moses is appealing to God's promise to Abraham years before that God he would bring his people into the promised land. This was an honest prayer, a selfless prayer, a biblical prayer. And that's the kind of prayer that God listens to. Verse 14, So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. So, some people say, oh, well, the Lord changed his mind. Hmm. Can the Lord change his mind? So the question becomes obvious. If God repented or relented or changed his mind, does that mean he sinned when his anger burned hot, when he planned on destroying the people? I don't think so. Well, firstly, God can't sin. Uh, But here's my reason why. Who put into the heart of Moses to stand up for the people, to plead for them? God did, yeah. So God God had a plan, all right? God knows everything that's going to happen. Later he will say, I looked for a man to stand in the gap but found none. That's in Ezekiel 22.30. That's a long time ahead. But here God did find a man to stand in the gap. God did find a man to mediate, to intercede to have his own heart, a love for the people. So this was really a test for Moses, and Moses passed the test, and this test is humility. These people have humiliated Moses, but Moses keeps on serving them. So when people humiliate us, are we able to keep on serving them? God said, I'll make you into a new nation, and that's like a wow thing, but Moses was still more concerned about the things of God than he was about himself. Now the promise, just want to go back to that promise that Moses was talking about, that Moses was claiming. Remember that when God made the promise to Abraham to bring them into the land, he already knew that they would rebel against him. He knew the future. It had always been God's plan to bring them into the land, which meant that destroying them would have broken his promise to Abraham. So I'm just going to put on the screen, it's Genesis 15. Verses 12 to 16, it says, As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. So that's the promise. It says in verse 16, After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. Well, they're not in the land yet. God hasn't fulfilled his promise yet. And we know from reading on that he does fulfill his promise. So just a little bit about that too. Abraham, the Amorites were in the land of Canaan and God promised that he, they would defeat them. But 
their sin wasn't ripe yet. I've got a quote from Chuck Smith. It says, There are some difficulties with this text. The difficulties lie in what we view to be an apparently angry God being conciliated by Moses. In a sense, it looks like God is the hothead and Moses is trying to calm God down. God is wanting to wipe out the children of Israel and Moses is interceding for them. Through Moses' perseverance, God's mind seemed to be changed and God then did not wipe out the people. Our problem lies in language. God is infinite and yet we must describe God in human finite terminology in words that we know, in words that we understand. And so we read, the Lord relented and did not slay them. And we say, well, God changed his mind. Moses was successful in his intercession and changed the mind of God. Yet we know that God does not change. And I've got a verse for you here. It fits perfectly into what we're talking about. It's Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. It says, I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why your descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Isn't that cool? Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the Lord. I do not change. That is why your descendants of of Jacob are not already destroyed. God made a promise to Abraham and he has not changed his mind. The Israelites are still his people. So Chuck continues, as we get into this interchange with Moses and God, and we see Moses interceding for the people, it is important that we remember where Moses' inspiration came from to pray for these people. God laid it on the heart of Moses to intercede for the people that God might spare them in gracious response to their intercession. So we see that despite the people um, being deserving of death, it was God's heart to spare them, and that was his plan all along. Uh, Verse 15, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So the breaking of these tablets represented the breaking of the law. And if you think about Jesus in the temple, what happened when he saw the people buying and selling and they turned the house of God into a house of merchandise? The same thing happened to him. His anger became hot. It was a righteous anger. So Moses' anger here is a righteous anger. Verse 20, Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. Wouldn't have been very pleasant. So, in Moses, as compared to Aaron, we see a leader who doesn't walk in the fear of man. His goal is not popularity, but godliness, and that's the mark of a a true godly leader. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, 
What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Aaron's lying here. And when we're living in the fear of man, there's always a temptation to stretch the truth, to lie. That's what we're seeing here. Aaron doesn't want himself to be seen as who he really is. He's more concerned about his reputation than he is his character. Verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, to their shame among their enemies. That's pretty serious there. To their shame among their enemies. People from the outside were looking. They could see what was happening. And they had brought shame upon themselves. Their sin had brought shame upon them. We bring dishonor to God when we sin. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Remember what Joshua says later on? As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. <clears throat> you choose this day who you're going to serve, but as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Now, this is a change. This is a good change. In Genesis 34, Levi was not a good son. He was immoral, he was treacherous, and he was violent. But now, the children of Levi are faithful to the Lord. There's a change in character for them. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's Hebrews 4.12. Now, sometimes, like Levi, in obedience to the prompting of the Spirit, we must draw the sword of the Word when speaking to those we care about most. Even though it might cause pain initially, cleansing and healing will be the result eventually if we speak the truth in love. And that's um, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Sometimes the truth can hurt, but if you do it in a loving way, it will bear fruit. It will cleanse. Uh, Verse 28, So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So the day the law came down in the hand of Moses, 3,000 people died. Now, contrast that to Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came down, Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. So we see a distinct picture here. And it reminds us of this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I've got it in two different translations. It says, It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death. But under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. 
and the New King James, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, that is the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the law brings death, the Spirit brings life. The law was never ever going to do anything else but bring death, because no one can keep the law. The law, as we learnt last week, was to bring us to the place where we realize that we're sinners, and then we're under grace, the new covenant. So verse 29, Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man has opposed his son and his brother. And so we see the the Levites um, faithful to the Lord and willing to stand up for the truth. And that's an important thing for us too. Are we willing to stand up for the truth? Verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. In the New Testament, we understand atonement to be the washing away of our sin, to be cleansing from our sin. But prior to the cross, the Old Testament meaning of atonement was not washing away, but only of covering up, because the blood hadn't been shed yet. Verse 31, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin, and have made for themselves a God of gold. So Moses is making a confession. When we confess our sins, we need to be specific. We need to identify the sin. We need to say, Lord, forgive me. I lied to him when I said this, or I was wrong when I got angry with her about that. We need to be specific when we confess our sins. And be equally specific in declaring that our sins or your sins are forgiven, cleansed, atoned by the blood of the Lamb, so we don't feel that condemnation. Verse 32. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. So basically he's saying, if you don't forgive these people, Lord, blot my name out of your book of life as well. Destroy me along with them. That's a pretty bold statement to make. That's really standing in the gap. That's a heart that loves the people that you're serving. So as we asked before, who gave Moses his heart? Well, the same one that gave Paul a heart that said, in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. That's not just Moses, and it's not just Paul. It's anyone who has God's agape love in them, loving those around them. I've got another quote from Chuck Smith. How much of a burden do we have for the lost? How much of a burden do you have for the lost around you? God help us. We hardly have enough burden to even tell of Jesus Christ, and we don't even have enough of a burden to share with them, much less to be so concerned that we say, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Unfortunately, what Chuck says is true for most of the church, I think. 
I'm not, I don't want to condemn anyone, but very few people are willing to get out of their comfort zone and be bold enough to share the gospel with the lost. And when I say gospel, I mean the full gospel, which includes sin and repentance. This is the true definition of empathy, of God's agape love towards the lost. As it says in Ephesians 6, as part of the armor of God, we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us with his agape love, praying in the Spirit, and be filled with boldness, as Paul also prayed, so that we can be effective in sharing our faith. And sharing your faith starts with praying for people. You don't just go out to the street and say, okay, I'm going to start witnessing. You start by praying for them first, and then God will strengthen your faith. God will give you that love that you need to do that. So prayer comes first. Do you remember that? And we've done the Way of the Master basic evangelism training course, and that was a really good way of of knowing the practical steps of um, how to share the gospel. Uh, Verse 33, And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Those who have not repented, basically. Those who refuse to repent. Now therefore, go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. In Ezekiel, it says that if a sinner repents, then God will accept them. But it says if a righteous person goes into their sin, then God will reject them. And so in the Old Testament, we have this kind of principle that the the person who sins will die. The person who continues to sin will die. Verse 34, Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. So God has basically said, I accept your prayer. The people would live, they have been forgiven. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Now it doesn't say how he plagued them here. But it does say that his son would lead them. That's Jesus. He is the rock who went with them, it says in Corinthians. However, there's still repercussions or consequences for their sin and that's the way it always is we might be forgiven for our sin but galatians 6 verses 7 and 8 says do not be misled you cannot mock the justice of god you will always harvest what you plant or reap what you sow those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature but those who live to please the spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Just want to go back to verse 1, waiting on the Lord. Just five minutes to finish talking about waiting on the Lord. Remember verse 1, it says Moses stayed up there on the mountain for the full 40 days until God made an end of speaking to him. Not that Moses made an end of speaking to God, but God made an end of speaking to Moses. Waiting on the Lord. And as I was saying before, it's so easy to seek God's will concerning something in your life, only to walk away before God gives you an answer. And so we miss out on doing things in God's way and in God's strength, and instead do things our own way and in our own strength. And the results speak for themselves. I have made some terrible mistakes because I've been prayed, God, what is your will for me? And I haven't waited to hear the answer. I haven't waited long enough to hear the answer. I've got some verses just I'd like to, to read to you. When we think of wait on the Lord, it's another way of saying trust the Lord. So in the Psalms, when you read wait on the Lord, kind of think trust, all right? 
Psalm 27.14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So it takes courage to wait on the Lord. Uh, Psalm 37.9, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Sometimes it seems that the evil are prospering, and we wonder, is it really worth waiting on the Lord, trusting in the Lord? Because sometimes in the short and sometimes medium term, the wicked do seem to prosper. But here's some more promises about waiting on the Lord. Psalm 37, 34. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. And one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Isaiah 40, verse 28 to 31. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, The creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I just wanted to quickly go through two people, one who didn't wait on the Lord and one who did. Saul, King Saul. Samuel told Saul to wait seven days until he returned. And here's an example. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now, Samuel was the priest, the prophet. He was the the one who gave Saul his spiritual guidance. Now, a year or two goes by, and Saul has been quite successful to this point. But now the Philistines are there. A battle is looming, and Samuel again gives this command to wait seven days and then I'll come and I'll show you what to do. I'll reveal God's will to you. And it says in, um, pick out the story in First Samuel chapter 13 verse 8, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. He just needed to wait just a little bit longer. Just a tiny bit longer. Saul running ahead of the Lord demonstrated a lack of faith. So yes, the situation was stressful. And Saul had started to worry, taking his eyes off the Lord. He was not waiting on the Lord. He wasn't trusting. And Saul failed this test of faith. He failed to wait on the Lord. He failed to trust in God. Saul failed to wait until Samuel, God's prophet, came to him and showed him what to do. Now, the consequences for this particular mistake that Saul made was terrible. God said, because of this, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to David. Now, there's times in my life when I thought that I knew what was best. I've spoken before, I've asked God for wisdom, I've acted impulsively, and as a result, I've made some terrible mistakes. I've suffered financially, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And like King Saul, sometimes the consequences are for a lifetime. 
Here's a verse that I keep in mind. Isaiah 28.16 Whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, the contrast. David, what did he do? Well, before the battle, he sought the Lord for guidance. And in contrast to Saul, he was established by God. So, here's David. It um, speaks for itself. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephraim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Notice that David didn't do anything until he heard from the Lord. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. Moving on to verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephraim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Giza. I just love that little um, story. First of all, what is our stronghold? David went down to the stronghold. Well, our stronghold is praying the Spirit, is praying according to God's will, in a quiet place, away from distraction. That's where our strength is. The Bible says that God is our strong tower or strong fortress and we need to run to him to be safe, just like David ran to his stronghold. Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. I also want you to notice that God's instructions to David were different each time. And it's pretty obvious as we read that that when David did things God's way, God fought for him and went before him and there was victory. So if you think back to King Saul at Gilgal, desperately waiting for Samuel to show up with his army steadily deserting him and an enemy waiting for him, you know, he, he no sooner as he's finished offering the sacrifice and Samuel shows up. This is so often the way of God. The Lord will wait until the very last moment to step in and help. Why? It's not to tease us, but to test us. He takes us right down to the wire, not to taunt us, but to train us in order that we might have endurance. You can read James chapter 1, verse 3. You see, the, the race we run as believers isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. And God knows that we really, really need endurance. And the only way to get endurance is to go through testing that will force us to wait on him, to trust him, in order that we might not panic, that we don't run off the track, that we don't throw in the towel. C.H. Spurgeon said that snails made it safely to the ark because they had endurance. You might be a snail, I might be a slug. We might move very, very slowly, but we will make it to the ark if we simply endure. Time is running out, we cry. We've got to do something. Well, do we? I can give you all kinds of advice and recommendations, 
but it's only when God steps in that there will be a real solution. Someone said that the brave man is not braver than any other, but simply braver for 10 minutes longer. It's an interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? The brave man is not braver than any other, but simply braver for 10 minutes longer. Who is the brave man? Well, or who is the mature brother, the wise sister, the deep Christian among us? It's not the one who is necessarily all super spiritual. It's the one who has learned to wait and not panic. Has God promised to show up? Yes. Has God promised that he is going to work all things for good? Yes. Has God promised to, to you that he will take the cares you cast on him? Yes. Has God promised that he will give you a peace deep within, a peace that passes understanding? Yes. Has God promised that the desires deep within your heart will come to pass? Yes. So wait for him. Don't panic. Be brave. Saul thought he had waited seven days, but seven days hadn't completely passed. He didn't wait the full course. Lord, make me a man of God, we pray, or a woman of God. Produce in me depth of character and wisdom. Okay, God says, I'm going to take you through some experiences in which you will have the choice either to panic and try to solve the problem by sacrificing this or looking to them, or you can trust me. And just one verse to finish, or two, three actually. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, meaning mature, needing nothing. Father, I thank you, Lord. Lord, we see a terrible example in the children of Israel in not waiting, in not trusting. But we've seen an example of King David of, of waiting and trusting and becoming established or becoming mature. Lord, help us not to panic, but rather to wait on you, to trust you. And even when things are falling down around us, we just we keep praying, we keep persevering in prayer until we get the answer from you of what to do, of how we should proceed, of what we need to say. Help us, Lord, to be... Um, mature men and women of God, that we go through testing with joy and that we put our trust in you and we wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.